Can you believe I'm not drinking yet? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to drink this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, of course, the big release, uh, the movie just destined to make millions and millions of dollars, is Stephen King's It. And to tie in with that, we're taking a look at a movie that the director of It did a couple years ago, a horror movie called Mama. So we're doing Mama and Imprinting. And to do that, I have a return guest. I have Anya Novak. Uh, So thanks for being here again. Hello, thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. You know this, but you're one of my favorite writers, so why don't you tell people where they can read more of your excellent film criticism? All of my work can be found at AnyaWrites.com. That's A-N-Y-A Writes.com. And most of my work can be found at Daily Grindhouse, where I now do a column on the video nasties. And what's the last uh, the last video nasty you covered? Uh, I believe it was... Late Night Trains, which is a Last House on the Left ripoff. A good one, though. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I'd highly recommend uh, checking out that column. It also gives, like, especially if you're in, if you're into horror specifically and that kind of grindhouse style, it gives you some real great uh, movie recommendations to check out maybe before you read the article. So that's what I've been kind of doing, like picking and choosing the ones I want to watch. And I highly recommend uh, Anya's writing. So before we jump into the psychology of imprinting, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Um, tying into the the themes in Mama, which the, the biggest theme I could think of was the monstrosity of grief. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a really common, durable theme in horror. And so some of the films I would recommend would be uh, Don't Look Now, which is a classic mm-hmm. uh, from the 70s with Donald Sutherland. Nice. And The Changeling is another one that's just like that, but uh, also in the 70s with, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, George S. Patton. Oh, no, George S. Yeah, that's him, right? No, not Patton. What the hell was his name? Ah, <laughs> uh, whatever. I can't remember it. But uh, that also. Oh, you're talking about George uh, C. Scott. George C. Scott. Yes. You know, I was yes. thinking of the movie yes. Patton. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. Okay. He played Patton, so I can see how you yes. got there for sure. Yeah. It, you know? <laughs> would you believe it? I'm not even drinking anything tonight. I am <laughs> no excuses. So- that's. <laughs> So both of those movies feature themes of grieving parents who are looking to to process their grief and horror plays heavily into that. Uh, One with a serial killer on the loose and the other with a haunted house. Nice. Would you believe I've never seen either of those movies? Like, those have both been on my list for years and I just have not gotten around to them. So this will this will give me the excuse I need. Like, well, Anya told me to watch it, so... I guess I have to now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna check those out for sure. So thank you, thank you for those recommendations. No problem. All right, so we're gonna take a break. Uh, I will talk about imprinting, and then we will bring Anya back to talk about Mama. 
Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that, by bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history. The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of all this mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to abfilmreview.com for episodes, or following on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. Alright, time for the psychology section. So, this week we're talking about imprinting, and really I got this idea from the director. There's actually an interview with him from essaycurrent.com, and they asked him what he considered the theme of the film. And he said... I was fascinated by the the idea of imprint in the film more than anything. The idea that a baby can look up to someone who is not their mother just as long as she nurtures them was very compelling to me. For these girls, there's something that is not of this world that has imprinted them. So, in terms of psychology, imprinting is any kind of what we would call phase-sensitive learning. And that's learning that occurs at a particular age or a certain life stage. It tends to be rapid, and it seems to be, it's apparently, independent of the consequences of behavior. So, filial imprinting is the best-known form. This is when a young animal, including humans, will acquire behavioral characteristics from the parent. Okay, now we're going to look at an article from Psychology Today from Dr. Adrian Furnham and talking about the psychology of imprinting and if it affects why we're attracted to certain types of people. So he discusses the fact that sometimes we read about animals who quote-unquote think they're a different species, dogs that think they're cats, sheep and pigs that act more like dogs, or ducks that think they have human parents. Now there's actually some psychological demonstrations of this. There is a uh, someone in the early... Someone in the mid-1900s named Conrad Lorenz, who lived from 1907 to 1989, discovered that if certain types of geese were hatched in an incubator, not around their parent, they would imprint on the first moving thing they saw, and it was very specifically in the first day and a half they were alive. He called this process stamping in. Now, this time period has since become known as the critical period. These Gossings actually ended up imprinting on his black walking boots and would follow him just like they would with a mother. He also found that other birds, called jackdaws, who imprinted on him, presented him with with worms, like as a gift. And he later showed that these ducklings would even imprint on inanimate objects like a red balloon or even a cardboard box. Now, imprinting is essential for every creature, for life and survival. So... Yes, quote, cats are quote-unquote hardwired to catch rats or mice, but they actually have to learn this art from their mother. Songbirds can sing, but they learn the tune from their parents. Now, imprinting is really complex, actually, and can involve more than one sense. It can involve sight, sound, and smell. And the imprinting is actually stronger if the animal is under stress, which I think shows why the, the young girls in Mama imprint so easily on this, on this creature that we meet at the beginning of the film. So this is a survival mechanism because when the threat of predators is at its highest, the imprinting is stronger. So you learn quicker and you adapt so you don't die. Uh, this form of imprinting, of course, as we mentioned, is called filial imprinting. And it can actually begin before birth as the newborn begins to hear the distinctive voice of their parent. Now, this critical period that we mentioned is sometimes called the sensitive period. It's the same thing. 
and it is a time-fixed period of early life just after birth. In ducks and geese, it's 24 to 48 hours. In cats, 2 to 7 weeks. Dogs, 2 to 10 weeks. And primates, 6 to 12 months. So imprinting is the interaction between instinct and learning. So it's not just simply learning something. So you have the instinct already there before you begin to learn. So it's important to note that this imprinting only occurs in this fixed window. So this is the critical period. That's why it's named that. So if you learn after this period, there are different and weaker effects. Also, the imprinting process is irreversible. These things are not forgotten. So once... Once you learn these things during the critical period, they are there forever. It's also species-specific. It happens to all animals in a particular species, and it doesn't matter what other differences are between them. A lot of researchers have actually suggested that imprinting gives positive feedback, and there's a release of endorphins, which connects this association between child and parent. It's also been suggested that imprinting occurs at this particular period when a young animal has a lower fear of novel events. So these researchers are basically arguing that if it happened later in life, you would already have learned to fear things that are out of the ordinary. So it has to happen at this early time. So what about imprinting in humans? So imprinting birds, pretty well established, but in mammals, it's actually rarer. Primates are born much more helpless and incomplete and have a very immature brain. The mother, usually, is the all-important provider and protector, caregiver, and companion. So this bonding and growing takes place not only earlier, but over longer periods of time. But that is not to say there aren't critical periods periods for human beings. So there's a lot of evidence now that is building that there are critical periods for things like second language learning. And the period up to five years old seems to be the kind of barrier for fluent acquisition of other languages. It doesn't mean you can't learn a second, a third, a fourth language at an, at an older age, but if you start earlier, your chances of it becoming imprinted in you are much, much higher. So some have actually speculated that there might even be a critical period for the acquisition and a preference for musical skills and composition. Many people seem, quote-unquote, stuck with the music of their late teens and early adulthood. That is, Throughout their entire lives, they still prefer and play the music they listen to in their adolescence. So these acquisitions in social skills and emotional intelligence are dictating this critical period around puberty. So now we move into sexual imprinting. So this is the idea that an animal starts developing sexual preference based on the species that they are imprinted on rather than their own species. So basically, you can easily learn to find inanimate objects as sexually exciting if one imprints on them at a crucial stage. So this may be an explanation to sexual fetishes that people show for materials like rubber or fur or even objects like shoes. A reverse sexual imprinting pattern has been observed, and it apparently evolved to suppress inbreeding. So this effect means that people who grow up together in clear family units during the first few years of life those people will seem particularly unattractive to each other sexually. Equally, children of opposite sex separated at birth often find each other sexually attractive if they meet later on. Now, this sexual imprinting can be both general and specific. Now, Freud described children as, quote-unquote, polymorphic perverts, meaning their problem would take many forms, no doubt partially as a result of these early learning experiences. So what about imprinting in human partners? So people often remark that their friends seem attracted to similar types. A male friend might always seem to have a short, dark-haired girlfriend or a female friend constantly chasing 
tall men. So since Freud's later work, it has been suggested that we are particularly attracted to or repelled by those that remind us of our parents. So this idea is a concept that involves imprinting. So early exposure to these particular parental characteristics will affect later adult mate preference. So there are a lot of studies on positive assortative mating. And this is the idea that we're attracted to people who look similar to us. People with similar level of attractiveness, as judged by the outside world, tend to mate with each other at levels much higher than the average. We choose people of similar height, intelligence, values, etc. There have been lots and lots of studies testing the opposite sex parental imprints, like phenomenon partner choice. Now, these, these studies have shown that daughters of older fathers tend to choose older partners, and children of mixed race marriages were more likely to choose a partner of their opposite sex rather than their same-sex parent. Things even as random as hair and eye color have been investigated. So are both men and women more likely to choose a partner who have the same coloring to that of their opposite sex parent of their birth? It's possible to differentiate between lots of different eye colors from black to blue, including green, gray, and hazel, as well as hair from platinum blonde through shades of brown and red. And actually, the results from all these studies tend to confirm this hypothesis. People do choose partners that resemble their opposite sex parent over and above the effects of their own same-sex parent effects. And people choose those of similar eye and hair color. So really what this is, it's a form of social learning. So it's certainly not clear that it happens at a specific stage or age for everyone. It doesn't necessarily have to have to occur in infancy. People are attracted to these familiar stimuli, and this can explain the phenomenon that further evolutionary psychologists have suggested, that it could be an adapted mechanism that leads to better and safer reproduction. All right, now, of course, in a movie like this, where our main characters are so young, they're not going to get into sexual imprinting. But, like, it would be interesting if you moved at least one of these characters further along in their life, depending on who they imprinted on, would that affect who they ended up being with, who they ended up being friends with, like it does for all of us. Like, obviously, these two young girls have been in a really, really stressful situation, uh, which would make sense why one of them, who is not old enough to be imprinted already, maybe, imprinted so quickly on kind of this supernatural force. Because we did talk about earlier how in stressful situations, and I think the beginning of this movie counts as very, very stressful, young animals, including humans, are much more likely to imprint more intensely, more quickly. All right, so that's it for the psychology section. We will take a break and then bring Anya Novak back to talk about Mama. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. So as always, we'll kind of talk about our history with with the, this movie. Uh, for me, uh, it's interesting. I I got like not recommended this movie. Like I was talking to a friend of mine about uh, one of my favorite movies, The Baba Duke, and he was talking about how much he liked that you didn't see a lot of The Baba Duke, unlike the creature in Mama. So it was like this kind of like 
you know, backhanded comment, like just kind of like, oh, well, that's not that great. So I decided I'm going to check it out. And I was really surprised because I kind of love this movie. Like, I think it's pretty fantastic. I think it's really well acted. I think it's really well directed. I think the creature is cool. So I didn't have the same issues that my friend had. And I've, I've, I've watched it now three times, you know, in the past, like four or five months. And I really enjoy it. But what about you? What's your history with this movie? Uh, I saw it just on a whim on Netflix a while back, and I went into it knowing almost nothing about it. Nice. I knew that Guillermo del Toro was involved somehow. What and else do you need big, to know? I mean, that's, right. Yeah. That was the big, the big draw <laughs> for me. And you could see why when you're watching the story, there's a big fairy tale aspect to it. And the yes. film, I, I believe the film even begins with a once upon a time. It does. Kind of like title card <laughs> kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I went into it knowing almost nothing and it blew me away and it made me ugly cry. And <laughs> it, it really kind of hit me more than the most horror films do these days. So it, it's, it's stuck with me and I've, I've ended up watching it a couple more times since then nice excellent all right so let's jump into this let's talk about uh the direction here uh so this is depending on uh depending on where you look it's either andy or andres muschietti uh is the director and also one of the writers of this film uh so overall what what are your what are your thoughts on his direction here i think he did a beautiful job here um like i was talking about there's definitely a fairy tale aspect and and there are a lot of things that I think people slept on with this movie, mm-hmm. uh, including like the color palettes oh. because they're so muted and, and these rural textures that are laced throughout the story. I think a lot of people don't really notice color language in a film unless it's these stark, vivid hues of jeweled colors that you see like in an Argento film or, sure. or Baba. Mm-hmm. But Mama had this array of neutrals and woodsy motifs uh, all throughout the film that really kind of stuck with me i mean i don't want to insult the director here but i did constantly kind of feel like i can feel gdt's hand here there's a there's a lot that's similar and maybe this director is just highly influenced by guillermo del toro and that's not a bad choice that's not a bad direction to go but like kind of just starting with the beginning i really enjoy this opening sequence where you get like the details of these of these kids backstory like before they meet mama like i love how tense that scene is like the panic of that scene and a little bit from the performance of nikolai kostrovaldau that stuff really works to me and the way you know even the way the the car accident is shot where it looks like they're kind of skidding to a halt and then the car just kind of tips over down this embankment and you are genuinely scared for these people you have no idea because it's a horror movie you're like oh maybe everybody dies at the beginning maybe it's a ghost movie who knows what we have going here so i really enjoyed that opening sequence right there was um there was a behind the scenes featurette i watched that uh featured an interview with with Muschietti, and he had said that he wrote this film because he wanted a horror film that also touched you. Mm-hmm. And he, he hadn't seen that, and he basically wrote the film he wanted to see, nice. uh, wrote what he wanted to see in the genre. And I thought that was pretty cool because he's right. You, know, you don't really see films that do that very often. Um, yeah. They either scare or they hit you hard, but they they rarely do both. And this mm-hmm. one definitely did that. So I, I would tip my hat to Muschietti for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you kind of you mentioned the color palette. This is kind of pseudo connected to that. I think he is so good with shadow in this movie, and that is kind of yes. it's kind of a lost art. Like there's a there's a lot of horror movies I watch where it's just like, oh, we're gonna put things completely in darkness, and that's how we're gonna scare you. But like there's, I mean, not even talking about the creature. I mean, that is the major part of his work with shadow. 
but even the sequences where the therapist is trying to talk to to the older girl and i love how her Mm -hmm. eyes are covered in shadow so there's like no chance you know like it's visual language that there's no chance that these two characters are going to connect like we're just we're going to keep that separate and i thought like what a really nice subtle way instead of like having some you know voiceover talk about how i'm having a really difficult time connecting with this patient like we get that image just from his work with shadow right he likes to do what like you were saying there's there's the hand of guillermo del toro again where he likes to speak with imagery yeah rather than narration or exposition or anything like that i love how patient this movie is a lot of a lot of horror movies will will come out and try to terrify you from the beginning and i love that we don't really see the full creature kind of till the last scene in the movie really like we catch glimpses we see the face a little bit we see the creatures dodging around corners and hiding in closets and it's designed to i think it's designed more to unnerve you than it is to scare you. And that to me has such a greater effect than something that's going to come out and try and get you with the jump scare. Right. It's that, that old school horror that, that him and Guillermo del Toro again, Mm -hmm. uh, constantly nod to. They like these old school stories where the monster is hidden in the shadows Mm -hmm. until the absolute last minute. And even then that monster has these, these human qualities to it that make it tragic or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, that, that, uh, what was it that, that Guillermo del Toro had said? He said that ghosts are the loop of one emotion playing over and over mm. again. And in the case yeah. of Mama, that emotion is this asphyxiating love. Asphyxiating love. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe I'm not drinking yeah. yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, and I also enjoyed in the beginning, kind of in the beginning of the movie when the, I mean, near the beginning where the kids are first rediscovered again, we're not really sure who the creature is. Like, is the creature Mm -hmm. this mama character or is it these terrifying feral children that are kind of hiding behind every corner? Like, I love the way that scene is shot when you have these two kind of workers come in to try and look at, you know, to go in and examine what's going on in this cabin and the way, you know, I don't know exactly how they did it, but the way they had these kids kind of scurry across the floor and hide in corners. And it makes you as the audience second guess, like, what am I really seeing here? Like how, and I think that's another thing he's trying to get across is how, how like when you're in a dark place, when you're in a dark house and you see shadows move, you're never really sure if you're seeing something or if your mind is playing tricks on you. And I think I think Andy Muschietti really captures that here. Yeah, the kids were able to blend into the background easily, but just enough. There was just enough conspicuousness for them to stand out to the audience. At right. Least, to, for us to see that glimmer of movement in the background. And that's such well, a tough the- balance. Yeah, the guys who were looking for them, they didn't see it until uh, until the last second. And yeah, they, they scurried about really fast. I don't know if they sped up the film or what they did, but please that tell was me jarring. they did. <laughs> I don't need to <laughs> know that there are children in the world that can do that. I need to know that that was just sped up film because there's enough <laughs> going on. Uh, I hope I don't mispronounce his name, but with Javier Botet going on here, there's enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrifying realism in that performance that I don't need like little versions of that running around. And you know, it's a, it's a testament to his performance oh. that a lot of people um, truly believe that Mama was completely CGI. It's only the hair. I looked it up. Only the hair only is the CGI. Hair. Oh my God. Yeah. I looked that up and I was like, okay, uh, I don't know if I could ever uh, want to meet that person. That is one of the scariest performances I've seen that is not, that's not aided by CGI. 
Like that's right. And the other thing I really like about the direction is how much he depends on his actors instead of depending on the gore and the special effects. There's one particular scene with Jessica Chastain kind of lying in the bed and the monster kind of creeps up behind her. And instead of showing the creature, uh, showing the creature under the bed and showing the creature really kind of getting in there with her, they just focus on her face and they just let the, he, I think, I think Machete knows, I don't, I don't know how he convinced uh, Chastain to do this. Cause this is right around the time she was doing zero dark 30. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. this is like her first role. And a lot of actors won't, after they become, you know, popular or set, a lot of them don't go into horror. Usually it's the other way around. Like you kind of start out there. So, and I think he realized what a great actress he had here. So he's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to depend on her and the audience is going to look at her and they're going to know how terrifying this is. So even if the effect doesn't really work, it's going to work anyway. Right. She, she can really emote and, um, she she gives good face, as they say. She does, yes. And you mentioned the um, the color palette in this movie. And the, the scene that stands out to me, I don't know about you, but the scene that stands out to me is this kind of final scene that's all kind of bathed in blue. So what did you think of, yeah. of that setup in particular? I always interpret blue and, and water, anything involving water, as a sort of rebirth or a cleansing. Always, always, always. Because... Mm-hmm. I used to read a lot of books, and that's what yeah, it always, that's always. means. Yep. <laughs> Lensing and rebirth. And uh, so you can see how when you when you take that into context with the the ending with the, the girls, and one chooses mama, the other one doesn't. And as they, they uh, plunge over the, the edge of the cliff, it's kind of a new life for mm. Lily, which is really her going back to the life that she's always known with right. mama. Mm-hmm. This this uh, feral wildlife, yeah, and and Victoria she starts a family anew with with uh, uh, Annabelle and her uncle, and for them it's completely new because now they they basically have a kid. That's their kid now. And they're also going to have to explain what happened to that other kid. But you know, I don't know yeah, how the court's going to handle that. That's, fun that's like call. the only thing in the movie that I'm like, oh, where do we go from here? CPS is on their way right away. There's they're going to be in some trouble. Um, yeah, there's but Deb, there's missing bodies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The therapist, he's gone. Right. Yeah. I guess you could just pin it on the therapist. You'd be like, yeah. I don't know. He was the last person with her. I don't know what happened. Just, there will be questions, though. Yeah, absolutely. But that scene is so... I mean, there's a lot of beautiful imagery in the film. But, like, honestly, I could just watch that final scene over and over and over again. And it is so stunning to look at. And I just... It, it would be really easy for that scene with that coloring to for everyone to appear washed out. But you get this... Mm-hmm. It's also like this mood lighting. Like, you get this... Not only, like, yeah, there's definitely rebirth going on there, but there's... You know, with rebirth, especially in these types of movies, comes death, and you do mm-hmm. get that feeling of the world kind of pressing down on the on this you know mini family going on here. Right, and it does have a uh, surreal, nightmarish mm. fairy tale feel to it. Yeah, I also think Bushetti is really good not only with visual language but with audio language. There is a there's a transition in this movie that is that is really noticeable, but I think really necessary. Like we transition from. The kids being left alone in the house to our aunt and uncle character and how they do that 
is they they go from this kind of moody music to this rock and roll music to this guitar heavy music and to me mm-hmm. what that symbolizes not only is like that's what they like to do that's what they love but it, it symbolizes this idea of of irresponsibility and youth and like these people are not ready and to me like that's the one of the most interesting parts of this movie is the kind of arc of these of these people who are clearly not ready to be parents but kind of have to be and they're kind of thrown into this situation exactly one of the elements of the film that i super appreciated was annabelle's complete character arc she yes. she fully transitions in this film she's given that agency and it reminded me a lot of uh, dr grant in jurassic park oh it's a good uh, call yeah 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 neither of the characters particularly wanted kids or really cared for them until it really started going down right and then they became protectors because it was necessary and in Annabelle's arc, she only reluctantly took over guardianship of Victoria and Lily after her Very reluctantly. Her man, <laughs> yeah, was in a coma. She kind of had no choice. And like, uh, her surrogacy was constantly at odds with that of Mama, who saw her as kind of a threat. I mean, right. she saw everybody as a threat. But well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Annabelle in particular. I think Jessica Chastain did a great job here um, just fully traversing that, that arc of emotion and maturity. Yeah, so let's kind of move to that. That's the perfect transition to talk about the acting. So um, Jessica Chastain is never bad. Like, I don't think she's turned in a bad performance in her career. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of her work. And even in movies that aren't so great, like, she's always really good to great. I saw this when I sat down to watch this movie and her character showed up. Like, I immediately got angry at everyone I knew. Like, why didn't you tell me about this? Why didn't you tell me (laughs) Jessica Chastain was in this movie? I would have seen this a long time ago. And it's a very different character for her. I think a lot of times, I guess, besides things like Zero Dark Thirty, we see her as a very nurturing character, usually. Those are the types of characters she plays. Um, And in this, especially at the start, I mean, it opens up with her, like, thanking God that she's not pregnant. Like, it's it's the opposite of of a maternal aspect here. But I really, really loved her performance here. This actually, I think, is probably one of her most underrated performances. Like, I think I think sometimes people have a bad attitude about horror movies, and they mm. don't expect great performances. And I, this is one I would point them to. is like, look, you can make a horror movie. It can be well-written, well-directed, and you can have great actors in it. Take a look at this. Uh, so what did, what did you think of Jessica Chastain? Were there any scenes that, like, stood out to you that, like, really hammered home that, like, oh, she is really doing some good work here? Yeah, well, the end, the final scene. Oh, my God. Where she's just, she's beaten up. She's, you know, she's been thrown on the ground. and She keeps she crawling. Still, she keeps <laughs> crawling. She grabs that robe and, you know, still tries to hold the child back. And she's terrified. She yeah. she perfectly uh, uh, walks that fine line between I want to protect these kids, but also I don't want to die. Right. And that's, Details. that's what she, she <laughs> perfectly does. And I think that's why Guillermo del Toro later cast her in Crimson Peak. Yeah. A couple years later. Yeah. I, I think, I think, think that's she, a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> she is right at home in horror. I mean, you know, she, she zero dark 30 interstellar. She does a great job yeah. in everything she does, but Horror is a good place for her. I'm just. I, I think so. I think not only horror, but she's also like. Let's let's be honest. When we talk about movies like Crimson Peak, it's not subtle. <laughs> that mm-hmm. performance is not a measured performance. So she's also really good at making you believe melodrama, which is no small yeah. feat. Not a lot of actors can do that. Like, there's never a moment. In, I mean, I mean, you talked about the end of this movie where she's like literally crawling on her hands and knees, screaming, crying, you know, and there's never a moment where you doubt it. 
Like it feels real. And that's due to the arc that we've been given that she's performed. Exactly. And in, in a lot of her roles I've noticed are strong roles as well. Even in roles where she has a very obvious flaw, like in the help, um, she still (laughs) brings, (laughs) she still brings a level of empathy to the role that, that, that always comes through. This is a great, great performance. It is. I totally agree. So what about her uh, her kind of scene partner, a lot of these a lot of these early scenes, Nikolai Koster-Waldau, who, of course, at this point is more known for, for for Game of Thrones, for being on for being on TV. So what did you think? He plays a dual role here. So what did you think of, of his performance here? Well, the scene that hit me the hardest was when he played the father in the very mm. beginning, yeah. where he's just he is he is a man at the end of his rope. Oh, he has, he has nowhere to go, and there's a lot of pain in there. And even when he decides, okay, I've got to die. This kid's got to die. We're we're both gonna die. We're gonna go out together. There's a lot of pain and hesitation on his part when he's you know telling his daughter to look at the deer. It, it was very heavy. Yeah, it's it's brutal. I thought like I thought that scene was very good. I thought the 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 scenes as the uncle like they were fine. It's not as if they stood out as being poor. But I think when you compare him to Jessica Chastain's performance, it's a little muted. It's 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 a little yeah. bland. You know, it it's serviceable, and I, I think it's upsetting because I think he's actually quite a good actor, and I hope he gets more opportunities in film because I think he's got a lot to give. But I don't think this this was the movie for him. I think he is. I mean, he spends most of the movie in a hospital bed, so. You know, there's not much you can do. Although I do think he was good in that hospital scene, that kind of nightmare scene where he's only able to act with his face because he can't move out of the bed. But overall, just kind of like this middling performance in a good movie. Now, I'm wondering, I agree totally. And I'm wondering if that is due to his performance or the way it was written, Mm, because this movie seems to be, you know, titles Mama. It seems to be about maternal uh, uh, arcs. Yeah. And I think there was definitely a bigger focus on Annabelle's arc than there was on on the, the uncles. Mm-hmm. And see, I can't even remember his name. That doesn't really. matter. The guy. Who cares? <laughs> the guy. <laughs> I feel like that's how Uncle Lucas. There we go. Yes. That's how important her role is compared to his. Now, the feminist in me is like, hell yeah, that's mm-hmm. what's up right there. It should be that way every time. But I also feel like there was only so much that he was given to work with. If you're talking about getting these characters to a place where they love these kids and take care of these kids, he's there pretty quickly. Like there's mm-hmm. not much of an arc for him. So it makes sense that they remove him from the story because he's a protector and he's, he already cares about these kids. Whereas right. Jessica Chastain's character has to get there. She's not there yet. Like there's these aren't a transformation there. Yeah. Right. Like this isn't her blood. These aren't her nieces. So she's having to kind of adjust to this really quickly where he has always had a connection with these kids. So there's not as far for him to go. So what did you think of the performances of the two little girls here? Now this is rare. These were two good child actors in a Mm -hmm. horror movie. They did an amazing job. Yeah, I Uh, thought they were really good too. Right, especially uh, I'd like to give big props to the older child. Um, The one who spoke? Yes, the one who (laughs) spoke. I I don't have her her name in front of me, sorry. But she she did a really good job of of also transitioning from this this feral Mm -hmm. life lifestyle to complete civilization she reacclimated really easily 
uh, there was a scene in which she suddenly recognizes her uncle Lucas once she's given mm. the eyeglasses. And it's this yeah. symbol of domesticity that kind of pops up throughout the film. Yeah. On the other hand, Lily, the younger one, she was imprinted by mama. Mm-hmm. Like, mama happens to be pretty domineering. But well, the a little older bit. child, <laughs> the older one, uh, her her arc, her reacclimation to civilized life was was pretty cool to see. And it was very believable to me. Yeah. And it's hard to make a child do that. Yes, I don't it, know. It, I don't know what they did to really make her is. cry, and I'm sorry for whatever they did, but they got a good performance out of her. <laughs> they absolutely did. Yeah, that actress's name is uh, Megan Charpentier, uh, and she's quite good in this movie. The other actress, actually, it's it's interesting. Like she spoke almost no English because I think her mm-hmm. background is French, uh, so it makes sense that they didn't have her have much dialogue. But I think the fact that you talked about, obviously we'll talk about imprinting later when we talk about the theme, but I think it makes the ending of this film make sense. Like the mm-hmm. directions these two kids go. Both of the performances are really good. Like I am genuinely pretty tough on child performances, even child performances that most people like. I'm like, nope, not good. Don't like it. Let's move on. But these two performances <laughs> are very, very good. But I think the last person to talk about briefly, we already mentioned him earlier, is Javier Botet. It's easy to kind of ignore this performance when we talk on a podcast because there's not a lot of dialogue. It's all physical. Mm-hmm. But I think without this performance, I, I don't think this movie really works. The way that he moves his body is legitimately horrifying from the first moment we see Mama till the very last frame of the film. It is something else. It's it's right up there with, I'm trying to remember the guy who does all of the Guillermo del Toro movies, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Uh, it's yes. right up there with his level of performance. And actually, I think he's going to play a small part in it uh, coming out soon. So we get to he see is. more of Javier Botet. Uh, but I was just really, really kind of blown away. And like we mentioned, when I looked up that this was not CGI, I was like genuinely mm-hmm. kind of disturbed. Like, I feel like physical performances like this don't get enough credit. Like whether you're talking about, you know, motion capture performances like Andy Serkis does or stuff like mm-hmm. Doug Jones and Javier Botet, like this is a very specific skill set that very few people have. And it really impressed me. I wrote a piece about him for Birth Movies Death a, a little while back. I read that piece. Yes about his the physicality that he can bring to every role he's mm. been you've probably seen him listeners yes. <laughs> you have probably seen him in, in if you especially if you're a horror fan if you've seen record if you've seen crimson peak the conjuring mm-hmm. 2 alien covenant you have seen javier botet before yep. uh he's done a lot of that motion capture work if there's a creature that you are, were sure is cgi and is very long and lanky <laughs> It's That's him. your boy Javier right there. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's move to the script here. So I usually like if I'm being honest, the my expectations. If you're talking about horror movies, I think sometimes this is the area my expectations are the lowest because horror has a lot of tropes and it has some well worn paths. And sometimes writers will take shortcuts because they're like, oh, you know, it's a horror movie. I mean, there's been. I mean, there's been whole movies, there's a whole section of movies talking about the horror rules. If you're talking about movies like Scream, like it is sometimes it is that ingrained. But I was really impressed with the writing here. Like it, there's very, there's only a few moments where I'm like, okay, a little bit too much exposition. And they usually give that to the therapist. Like they set up this whole exposition yeah. of like who mama is. Like he just apparently magically knows this, like this, this thing that the, the, they have this mother, this mother uh, figure. And he just has kind of figured this out somehow, but it's, it's short enough that it's, that it's fine, that it like, it gets you going. But other than that, like things are actually really subtle. Like I like the fact that it sets up, 
this couple from the beginning as irresponsible, not just the music cue I talked about, but we have, of course, like the celebration of the negative pregnancy test. And we have right <laughs> after that, he's run out of money. So this is exactly the type of person who probably is not ready to be a parent. And I like that they set that up, but still in a way that we like them and we root for them. So when he wants to take care of these kids, we're not like, oh, this is a horrible idea. Like we are right. still rooting for them. Right. There's, there's a lot of empathy laced in from the very get-go. And I think that's really important in a story like this that depends heavily on its characters. I keep going back to fairy tales, but this movie has um, a mythical quality about it. And it, it, it is very old school. And mm -hmm. it's got some of those tropes that you see that these these kids that are able to access kind of a paranormal that, that most adults can't. There's this witch-like villain. Hmm. There's this collision of the real and the supernatural as a way to process really heavy themes. And it is something that you've seen before in Pan's Labyrinth and, and The Devil's Backbone and even The Orphanage, which was also mm -hmm. produced by Guillermo del Toro. It's like there's a, there's a theme there. There's a theme his work. here. <laughs> I'm sensing a pattern. Yes. And so I think that they did a really good job of taking these old school horror tropes and making something new with it and something that could still hit audiences pretty hard. Yeah. There's also a, a moment I really, really love where um, the older girl starts to call Annabelle mom and she immediately mm -hmm. like just almost like physically moves back from it. Like, nope, you're not going to call me that. Like, I am not ready for that. And I like that they mm -hmm. didn't make it easy. But the first scene when she's interacting with these girls and then you fast forward to the end of this film, you're like, uh, you're going to get there in a hundred minutes? Okay, <laughs> good luck. But it is really convincing. And not just because of great performance by Jessica Chastain, but it's written into the movie. Like there is, there's a scene that I'll probably talk about in favorite scenes where she finally connects with the younger daughter, which is a really moving moment almost without dialogue. So like this arc really, really works. Right. The legendary and fictional children are usually depicted as growing up with these normal human intelligence and, and skills and this innate sense of culture or civilization. Then they have these survival instincts. And that's rooted in, in reality, the real feral children that you read about. They, they take it into a mythical uh, a realm by adding in mama and her her whole domineering nature which is its own kind of horror trope too mm -hmm. that whole domineering mom we've seen that in a billion horror villains yes. and even even in movies that aren't specifically horror like stuff like hitchcock you know, yeah you get a lot of that For and sure. i think i really like that they humanize this monster they didn't have to do it for a horror movie. You don't have to humanize anybody, really. But <laughs> to do it for the monster, I thought, was a good call. And I think that a lot of audiences audiences today like to be spoon-fed. Yeah, so true. <laughs> and if, if they are not spoon-fed, then they call a movie boring or pretentious or, mm -hmm. or confusing. And I think that was a lot of the criticism that I saw, what criticism I could see for Mama. And I think that's because of that that great pacing that you were talking about and that that wonderful subtle language that they they wove throughout the story if you watch this movie and you came away confused i don't know where to start 
Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's, it's, it's right there for you. I, I don't, I think there, there are deeper readings of this movie, but as far as what this movie is about, I think it's right there on the surface for you. Like, I think it's, it's not spoon fed, but it's like, open your eyes and open your ears and it's there. You'll be right, fine. Put down the phone. Right. And just watch the movie. <laughs> now, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they, they broke a couple of rules. A lot of audiences these days aren't really into the whole jump scare thing. And they'll mm-hmm. call you out if you have jump scares. And this movie is full of them. Yeah. But and I hate me, jump scares, but I didn't care. Like, right. I'm usually the first one to be like, oh, that's so lame. But there aren't there aren't any fake out jump scares here. Right. I think they're like those carpenter jump scares where yes. there's a buildup, there's a payoff and yep. you, you get what you wanted out of it. There's yeah. there's no like there's no cat that jumped out of the closet. Oh, to scare you. God, there's no uh, <laughs> he's so angry. What was that? The, the medicine cabinet closing the medicine cabinet door and there's yes. the killer behind you. There's none of that. Right. When when you get a jump scare, it's it's a legit scare and i did appreciate that so we have to talk about the ending of this movie because i when i first watched this movie like i felt betrayed like i was angry (laughs) like not in a way where i was like this is a terrible movie but like you go into that scene and you're rooting so hard especially for annabelle and you're like she is gonna save these kids she's a mom now everything's gonna work out fine and it does for one kid i mean i I think (laughs) you could argue it works out for everybody they make their choices but like the fact that the younger child is taken away to who knows what and where with mama as she like leaps off this off this cliff it is right. it is a horrifying end and it is not by any stretch a happy ending where everything kind of wraps up and i remember watching this like just kind of sitting there like oh well, that's not what I expected. And that that is a, both a really angering and a really good feeling, especially when, you know, we talked about kind of the, the tropes of horror movies and there are certain things you expect. Uh, and this was not it. So it was really nice to be surprised by that ending. Right. If you had seen Guillermo del Toro movies, mm-hmm. listener, you know that he's not a big fan of the completely wrapped with a bow happy ending. No. He will, he will put you through the <laughs> ringer. He doesn't care. And uh, I think that 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 works here. Uh, The the monstrosity of grief that I was talking about before is definitely at play here. And it's it's the villain's grief that that really um, drives a lot of the conflict in the story. Mama is she's roaming the woods in search of her lost child, her baby that died without her knowledge. She had no idea that her baby was dead. And once she had the remains of her child and Lily, her unfinished business was kind of complete and once she found out, she found out not only what happened to her baby, but Lily willingly came to her and allowed her to actively care for a, a living, I mean, I use that term very loosely, <laughs> a living child. Yes. This was also what Lily wanted. And, and Mama was all she knew in the short time she had. Mm-hmm. They were happy when they embraced at the end. They were genuinely happy when they were mm-hmm. when they were going towards each other. They were falling and Lily, you know, kind of caresses mama's face and smiles and then you know they hit the branch and turn into butterflies or moths or whatever yeah i don't know which is another very guillermo del toro image like as this movie opened and you see the moths at the cabin i was like oh okay here we go (laughs) here we go yeah absolutely (laughs) i couldn't see very well because i was ugly crying at the time well there's there's mascara was running and it was it was horrible (laughs) i mean it was beautiful it was a beautiful scene but it did not make me uh ugly cry any less like i was heaving (laughs) and most importantly it makes sense like if if you look at the arc of these characters those decisions even if they upset you 
they make sense. And that is so rare in movies like this. A lot of times in movies like this, they're going to go for, if they're going to have an unhappy ending, they're going for the shock value. Like, ooh, you weren't expecting that. And this is like, if you look back, you're like, okay, I don't, I don't really like that we went that way, but I, okay, I can see it. I get it. it. Right. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the production value. So we talked, you know, a fair amount about Javier Botet and the creature design. Uh, one thing that I really liked was there is a, the sequence where Mama makes herself visible to this therapist. Uh, and it's an old kind of, I mean, you see it in horror movies. We see it in movies, even movies like Rear Window, where you have the oh, flash, yeah, the flash that, aspect. Yeah. And I flash really ball. like that because we just, again, like we just get glimpses of Mama really quickly because we're not ready to see the whole creature until the very end. So I like that stylistic choice a lot. Yeah, it was a it was a way to reveal without fully revealing. Right. And uh, it was still terrifying, you know, to see her coming closer and closer and closer with every flash bulb. Mm-hmm. And it, it did totally evoke those same feelings that you had when watching Rear Window for the first time. Yep. As a, what was his name? Thorwald. Thorwald yeah. is coming yep. toward an immobile Jimmy Stewart who's completely helpless. Yep. Except you don't feel as bad for the therapist because he's kind of a douche nozzle. He's not the best. Like, it's just <laughs> one more, God, there's a lot of these, but it's just one more shitty therapist in movies. Like, they are everywhere. And as someone who is a therapist, I'm like, can I get one win? Can I, like, <laughs> who are, they're all terrible in movies. But usually it's like either they're worthless and doing nothing or do it just way too much. Like, you need to just settle down like you don't need to be in this person's life at every single turn you need to just dial it back a notch and and this character is i don't think he's meant to be likable he is there he's a sacrifice like he is there to find out some information and die like that is yeah that's really all he's there for and you know he he does that um i think i think one of my favorite special effects in this movie though is a really simple one this like the the kind of wall rot that is going on like either oh, in the yeah. hallway or in the closet and it it does so much with so little you know it like it gives us like not only this this imagery of rot this like oh this is a dangerous place to be we don't want to be here but also this like this this gateway to something else you know this slight hole in the in the wall that we know shouldn't be there and i, I really like that as just like a really simple effective special effect i like what they do here with um, not just with that special effect, but with the setting itself. Mm. I really like horror movies that use the setting as an extension of the characters or of the conflict that's happening. And they definitely do that with the house that the, the the girls are in this, this rickety old kind of Mm. nasty, grimy house, a little bit, (laughs) a little nasty. Yeah, a little bit. And, and that, that rot that you talked about is, um, it's another another dialogue within that visual language mm-hmm. that we were talking about. It, it it all plays into those themes, and I I like that too. The visual yeah. rock. All right, so let's jump to our favorite scene. So, what's one of your favorite scenes from Mama? Okay, this is going to make me sound like a psycho, but it's actually the beginning. Oh, I can't wait. I, <laughs> <laughs> the beginning scene with with the the father who is taking his his kids out, uh, and I, I believe. The, the catalyst there was that he lost all of his money in the, the stock market. Stock market, actually, right? yeah. yep. And uh, he is, like we said before, he's at the end of his rope. And there's – this scene is so intense for me. Um, and you, you can, you can kind of get an idea of what's about to happen as he's taking them into this house. You get the idea that they're not – they're probably not all coming out alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, 
as he kind of, he goes into this back room away from his daughter and kind of breaks down a little bit. And he tries to psych himself up to, to kill himself and her, Oof. kill her and himself yeah. and the other way around. And he's, you know, kind of like banging the gun against his head and try, just trying to psych himself up for it. And he's very human. And even though he's about to do this absolutely horrible, horrendous thing, you're kind of feeling for him. You just, yeah. you just want to take him and say, it's, don't do it. You, it's going to be okay. We're going to fix this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that scene really works and it shouldn't for the reasons you brought up. Like, we don't know anything about this character other than, you know, he's probably killed his wife and he's going to kill his children. Yeah. Like, this is not an immediately likable character, but that performance that he gives, that that kind of like frayed around the edges performance, I think really, mm -hmm. really hits home. And not like we're like, oh, I can totally see myself in that position. But we've all been at the end of our rope in one way or another. So there is some, there's some connection there. Even if we would never go that far, we're like, I know what it's like to be in that mindset. And it really, it's mm -hmm. really effective. I like what they did with, with that scene in that they, they ratcheted up the intensity up and up and up until he's got the gun to the back of her head. And then they turn it on a dime yep. to straight up horror when mama shows up and says, yeah, not today, buddy. Yeah. And if and you didn't so, know that was a horror movie, if you went in totally blind yeah. and that happened, it's like, oh, okay, this is not, this is not the movie I thought it was after the first 10 <laughs> minutes. Like it definitely changes quickly. I like how they, they did that. They, they, they hit you hard, they touch you, and then they turn it into straight horror. And it's, it's a really good way to set up the tone for the movie entire because that's what mm -hmm. they do to you throughout the entire movie. Yeah, they give you scares <laughs> and they hit you hard. That's very, very true. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, it's not even so much a scene as like a really, a really clever shot that is very memorable to me. There is a scene where the younger girl is in the bedroom and she's playing with Mama. Mama is off screen. She's behind the wall. And then you have the older child standing in the hallway. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we could just see like her playing with Mama and we know what we're seeing, but we don't get to see it. And the way that is shot is so clever and works with shadow and works with light and works with these objects going on. And I was just like, wow, that is a, especially in a horror movie where a lot of times you don't have the biggest budgets. I was right. like, that is super smart. Like we get everything we need and we get, we get Jessica Chastain walking down the hallway and then getting distracted and having to walk back. So she doesn't get mm -hmm. to see the creature. And I was just like, God, this is so smart. This is so well planned out. Like you can tell this wasn't just like, well, we're going to fly by the seat of our pants. Like they put in some work to, to frame this shot. And I was really impressed right. with that. That that off-screen action that was going on that we don't quite get to see did remind me of another scene from a completely non-horror movie, hmm. and that was from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the little boy who sees these invaders, yep. and off-screen something's going on. You can, you can hear movement this, this way and that way, and something clangs over here, a toy uh, uh, starts moving over there, and you don't see any of it. All you see is this kid's face the whole time as he reacts to things that are going on off screen. Right. And that, that, that reminded me of that specific scene. Yeah. The only other scene I really wanted to bring up is we kind of mentioned, we kind of referenced it earlier, the scene where she has, where Annabelle has a connection with, with Lily. Like she's mm -hmm. screaming and crying and hitting her. And I love the fact that like, you know, Annabelle like takes the slap and doesn't react with violence. Like that's, you're starting to see the maternal in instinct. You're starting to see like, 
no matter what happens, I need to protect this child. Like, yes, because right. if she had slapped her in the face on their first day home, this might have been a totally different movie. Like, this, <laughs> this might have been, you know, a movie about child abuse. Um, but it's so it, like the way it happened later. And I love the fact that the way they end up connecting, she's like blowing on her fingers. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting that this child connects through sensation and not through words. Like she can connect yeah. with with Victoria by talking to her because she has that ability because she kind of had that before meeting Mama. So I love the fact that with Lily, it's like, no, we have to go to a much more kind of primal place to yeah. really connect with this kid. And it's such a moving scene. And it, it required, uh, again, a big dependence on the, the characters themselves mm-hmm. and um, a knowledge of things that aren't even really – said specifically in the film but this whole background with lily with with her her core being this this native primitive you know creature you know like mama like like she's always been that old soul that belongs with mama and that that i like that that scene like you said, that it occurs not on the first day, but later <laughs> on, because had it been the first day, it wouldn't have gone too well. I mean, and, and even with me, right. kid slaps me, like, we're going to have mm. problems. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when I first contacted you about doing an episode on this, I gave you the theme of imprinting. So as you kind of kept that in your mind and watched the movie, how do you feel like it ties in? But in with with, with the only one pointing, I was reading that, you know, there's a young animal that acquires several of its behavioral characteristics from its parent. And that uh, is something that you kind of see throughout literature and film mm-hmm. with with uh, stuff like the Jungle Book. It's been woven throughout uh, our history and our folklore mythology. Mm-hmm. And. Lily, in particular, is the one who seems to have the heaviest imprint from Mama. Oh, yeah. And you know, like what we were talking about earlier, she's the one who will not reacclimate to civilization. She will not acclimate to civilized life at all, right. whereas Victoria definitely does. And she kind of – I'm not sure if it counts as an imprint if Victoria becomes civilized, if that's an imprint in itself. But she – Later on, uh, uh, we were talking about those eyeglasses that becomes mm-hmm. kind of a motif throughout the film. It's like a symbol of, of, of civilization and, and domesticity. And Mama, at one point near the very end of the film, she takes off takes the eyeglasses, yep. crushes them. I was like, okay, all right, now now I know I'm not just grasping for straws here. That's <laughs> right. a thing here. And it's interesting when they're first introduced to Mama, her glasses have come off. Like it's another really right. clever way that we don't see the creature at the beginning because we see it through Victoria's eyes and it's all blurry and fuzzy. So that is very yeah. clearly a connection to, you know, the the kind of quote unquote more human life that she had been raised with. I think uh, when I was thinking about imprinting and watching this, the thing that was really interesting to me is when you look at imprinting, there's like, there's usually a, what we call like a critical period, right? So you have this period of time where this is when imprinting happens. Like you're not going to be imprinted when you're 13 years old. You're not going to be imprinted as an adult. It's as a very young child. So I find it really interesting, not only that Victoria was old enough to be imprinted, but the fact that you have Nikolai Koster-Waldau playing both of these roles, so it's really easy for her to get kind of reacclimated because she sees her father 
in this man. Like there's there's not even a bunch of scenes where she like starts calling him uncle again. She sees him as her father because he looks exactly like him. So I thought that was really interesting. And then you've got Lily, who was too young really to be fully imprinted on her family because she was just a really little kid. So she was essentially the first time she felt and remembered this kind of parental love it was through mama so her journey and where she goes at the end ends up making perfect sense right that's all she knew yep whereas victoria was old enough to really remember her father like you said who yeah. she she sees in her uncle although she kind of she sent throughout the movie she tends to kind of cozy up to annabelle a little bit more yeah well, I think she also had this, like, this female force in her life in Mama. So maybe she's trying to, like, yeah. transfer that over to another female figure. I mean, she's the first one to call her mom early right. in the film. She really craved that because I think she probably remembers what it was like to have a real mom, not this, like, creepy, crazy ghost mom who's, like, floating around and sucking the soul out of people. Like, she remembers what it's like to have that connection. Right. She's the one who's who's straight up kind of at one point, she's sort of protective of Annabelle and mm -hmm. says, like, you need to get away from me. Mama's not going to like that. You right. Know? And she tries to say it not as uh, a sense of not out of a sense of loyalty to Mama, but out of a sense of uh, as a way to warn Annabelle, like she's worried for Annabelle's safety. All right. So given what I know and people know about you online, um, I'm about to ask maybe the world's dumbest question. <laughs> Uh, so the movie we're tying, tying this with is Stephen King's It. So, Anya, are you, are you looking forward to seeing It? Um, <laughs> a little. Just a little bit? A bit excited. <laughs> a smidge. Okay, so I got a lot of grief for this last time I said it online, but I, I'm not a very big fan of the 1990 uh, Thank miniseries. you. Thank you. Okay, so I just watched this, and I was <laughs> bored out of my mind. Like, Tim Curry was good. He's fine. But like, oh, my God, the kid actors and the adult actors, like I was like, this cannot end soon enough. Like when you're rooting for Pennywise, that's a problem. <laughs> that's not great. That was the one thing I was loving was Pennywise. And I watched it with my nine-year-old son, Shane, because he wanted to see the new it. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, we got to see the first one first. And yep. you gotta, that's, that's the way it goes. You, know, you got to watch the original before you see the remake. And um, – he wasn't really all that impressed with it either. And he, he was like, well, you know, I'd heard you know a lot about Pennywise and Pennywise was really cool. He was awesome. He was scary. And then he said, but the, the kids were kind of dumb. Yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing to hear that kind of critique from a nine-year-old. Yeah. Acting. Fourth grader is like, meh, well, not that great. And uh, so I'm really rooting for this because um, Muschietti has, has, proven that he is big on characterization mm -hmm. which is a huge part of it you you have to give a shit about these characters about these kids especially and um i'm also excited because it looks like machietti can get a good performance out of kids i don't know what it is he did to make those girls cry mm -hmm. and scream and emote as they did in mama but whatever he did there i hope he does for it because these 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 kids, uh, they're going to be put through the ringer. Uh, right. I, I don't know if you read the book, but they go through some shit. Yes. All right. So uh, my whether I'm looking forward to this movie or not has been quite a journey. So when I first heard it was coming out, I was like, OK, everybody loves it. Everybody loves Stephen King. I'm not the biggest Stephen King fan. I think he is. <gasps> I know. I know. I think he's good. But I like so my experience is limited. 
So I read Salem's Lot, which I liked. Um, and then I read the Dark Tower books, which I liked but didn't love. Um, so it was kind of like, and everyone's like, these are the best books ever written. And I was like, eh, they're all right. They're fine. Uh, it's, he really wants to be J.R.R. Tolkien. I get it. Um, but, <laughs> um, so when I heard it was coming out, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll see it. You know, I'm interested. I never saw the, the older version. So I'm interested in checking this out. And originally it was going to be directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who I really, yes. really love. And he actually, uh, helped write the script. Um, and then he left the project and I was kind of like, ugh, I don't know. And this is before I had first watched Mama. And I was like, I don't know who this Andy Muschietti guy is. Like, I've never heard of him. He's probably terrible. Uh, and then watched Mama and I was like, okay, so I can get excited about this again. And yeah. then I, and then I decided, you know what? I'm going to put in the time. I'm going to read the book, all like 27,000 pages of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to watch the older movie. I'm going to watch the new movie. Um, right. and I read the book and it is fucking fantastic. Um, it is out of the Stephen King books I've read. It is easily the best book. Like it is legitimately great. It is not just a good book. It's not just readable. It is a great, great novel. Uh, I think Stephen King outside of people who are really into horror kind of, you know, there's this attitude of like, ah, yeah, he just does the horror thing and he does it over and over and over again. But this is, as you mentioned, this is a book about characters. This is not just Mm -hmm. about a scary clown. Like, yes, you know, it's the name of the book. Like it is Pennywise, but it's really about the growth of these kids and what happens when they become adults. And it's Mm -hmm. a really, really impressive work. So I got really excited about the movie again and I saw the trailer and I was like, okay, that was terrifying, especially after I'd read the book. I was like, okay, that trailer is scarier than the 1990 movie all put together. Like I was legitimately creeped out (laughs) and I was like, okay, great. And then I found out uh, that this is part one. I'm a little annoyed by that because i felt like oh they, come on well i okay so here's the thing <laughs> i would have been fine with it if that had been like a part of the a part of the trailers a part of like this is just the first part of the story like they didn't really make that clear so before a week ago i thought like wow they're gonna fit all of this into a two-hour movie well that's that's an interesting choice and now it's like okay and one of the things i really like about the book is the way it bounces back and forth between the child and the adult stories i think it's mm-hmm. brilliant and this is not going to do that this is going to be all kids so i really hope these kids are good because i got two hours of child acting to look forward to <laughs> um but i am still looking forward to it and i do think you know all early reviews have been really good it's going to make a bunch of money uh so most likely they are actually going to cast and film the second part which they haven't yet we don't have an adult cast set up which always kind of worries me when you're not like planning that out ahead of time at the start um so i have reservations but i am still really looking forward to this and i i expect it to be very very good so that's kind of where i am that's been my journey with it so there we are when you were talking about reading the book if you had said anything less than it is outstanding, I was going to reach through this microphone. <laughs> I wouldn't smack dare. You. Okay, so I got to be honest because I know how big of a fan you are of Stephen King. <laughs> uh, had I not liked it, I've been like, no, nah, I didn't read it. I don't know what you're talking about. Nope, <laughs> nope, no. It's it's really really good, and it's uh, there is a particular scene that I'm sure they're going to leave out of the movie that is kind of ridiculous and doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, so I'm glad that's not going to be in there because I'm pretty sure that'd be illegal uh, for them to have oh, that, that scene. scene. Yeah, yeah that's... you know what scene I'm talking about now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's tremendous. I think it's uh, I mean, honestly, it's it's too early really to say this because I just finished reading it like a week ago. 
but it's one of the best books I've read in a long, long time. Like it is up there. It is, it's worth the time you have to spend to read it. So hopefully the movie will get somewhere close. I don't expect it to be the best movie ever, but I want it to be scary. And from the trailers, it looks like we're headed in that direction. So that's enough for me right now. I think when we consider the 1990 miniseries, it's the bar is low here. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'm so glad I watched that because now I'm going to like, this movie is going to be great. Like almost no matter what, like it, it has to be better than what I just watched. So, so we've got that going for us. Right. I know when I was a kid, when I saw the, the 1990 miniseries, I was terrified probably because I wasn't supposed to be watching it because I was far too young to see it. Right. And, and Pennywise gave me nightmares. You know, he gave a whole generation of kids nightmares. Yep. But when I revisit it as an adult, I'm like, eh. yeah, not so much. Yeah. So Maybe I watched it just... as an adult. So it was like, kind of like, mm, okay, guys, I guess, I guess this is scary. Uh, not so much for me, but I'm, you know, in my late thirties. So I think that's uh, a little late to watch, to watch that version. But this version looks like it's going to be scary regardless of age. So. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really into it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open to the the two part thing, um, and it was just as much of a surprise to me when I when I read the news that it would be a two parter, because at first when I when I heard that it was going to be you know about a two hour movie, um, I thought well that's still not enough time to get everything that's no. in that that book is a behemoth. It should be it's like huge. a ten hour miniseries. Honestly, if they were really going to do it, yeah, like, there's so much. It would have been a great like HBO miniseries. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get at this point. Right. Like, I'm still right. looking forward to it. All right. Uh, so one more time before you leave, uh, tell people how they can find your writing and how they can contact you online. Most of my writing is on the Daily Grindhouse website, dailygrindhouse.com. That's where I have my video nasties column. And the rest of my work uh, from, from Big Massage and... 52 Weeks of Horror, Birth, Movies, Death, all of those places uh, can be found on my website, anyarights.com. That's A-N-Y-A, rights.com. And most of my shenanigans can be found on Twitter. <laughs> I'm I'm there all day, every day, just talking. <laughs> <laughs> just talking about horror. And and I, I get uppity with, <laughs> with mansplainers, and I talk about Robert Mitchum. And, a lot. Your man Mitchum. A Mitchum's. lot. Yeah, I know I, it's eclectic. It's weird, but that's where you will find me all day, every day at Bookish Plinko. That's B O O K I S H Plinko, like the game on the Price is Right. I don't know what I was thinking when I came up with that name, but now I'm stuck with it. That's my handle. Thank you, everyone, for listening to that latest episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Thank you to my guest, Anya Novak. You can follow her at Bookish Plinko and read all of her writing. If you're a fan at all of horror or written film criticism, you should definitely be checking out everything that she writes. So if you'd like to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can follow us at PC Case Study and interact there. You can go on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Instagram, pretty much any social media, just look up Pop Culture Case Study or PC Case Study and we will be there. And if you have something that you don't want to limit to 140 characters that you want to write to me, I would love that. You can email me at 
popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. That mailbox is always open for your takes, your complaints, your comments, whatever. Please, I am listening. All right, so the next time you hear my voice, we will be doing an episode on Stephen King's It, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, so definitely looking forward to that. And if you'd like to help us out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can just go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis and get some really cool rewards for supporting your favorite independent podcast. All right, until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. I saw you were watching it over again today. I was like, why, why so close? You're like, it's fine. It's fine. I got, I got four hours. It's fine. It's fresh. <laughs> <laughs>